welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Omar Ramirez as my guest here via Zoom on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Omar is the owner of Affordances, a workplace advisory group that helps teams set the groundwork for scaling a workplace experience. He is an active collaborator with Additions, a creative studio focused on reimagining connections through spatial experiences. Omar built his career working at high-growth tech companies, including Google, Netflix, Dropbox, Stripe, Atlassian, I happen to know them, and most recently, head of workplace at Miro. An active angel investor in the future of workspace, Omar is always seeking out new ways of thinking and creating. I was introduced to Omar by Jeremy Jennings, the co-founder of Jabberbox, uh, who we had on this podcast way back on uh, episode nine. So definitely uh, go back and check that out. Omar, thank you for taking the time to be here on the podcast. I'm excited to have this uh, this chat with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Very excited to be here. Cool. So um, I was kind of thinking about sort of what you do and kind of what I do as a you know as a as an architect working in the workplace you know, doing a lot of office space. We do other things, but one of the things that we're uh, mainly known for is, you know, workplace design and offices. And kind of thinking back kind of pre-pandemic, our office culture was, you know, we were all there five days a week. We definitely did the, you know, if you weren't, we're very flexible organization, but if you weren't quite in your seat, it was a little bit of like, "Eh, where is that person? You know, they working today kind of stuff. You know, that was kind of an underlying undertone there. Yeah. But we were also like a party kind of place where, you know, once a month we had these legendary parties that we called T3. Um, You know, we got food and beer and and some of them would go on till one or two in the morning it was it was crazy we even had like a mock wedding once um like a lot (laughs) lot of fun and then the pandemic hit and all of that kind of stopped and for me you know the office culture is such a big deal it was pretty devastating and i remember thinking like okay well when are we getting back to the office maybe it's next week you know 15 days to stop the spread it was going to be in 15 days and it was you know whatever (laughs) 30 days to stop the spread. And and by the time we got back to the office, kind of mid-summer, you know, nobody wanted to come back. And it was just me and my couple business partners, our office manager, you know, a couple people, you know, kind of doing some housekeeping stuff. And we've turned it into, you know, going forward, I, I think one of the positives, we did do two times a week Zoom calls. And so, and that that's going to kind of be important later when we talk about sort of virtual culture. Um, and that I actually found very rewarding. You know, we had these uh, these Zoom calls where 
I kind of got to know everyone a little bit differently than I did in the, um, you know, in the office in person because we did them a lot of times without an agenda. So we were just asking random questions like, hey, what's that in your background? Oh, you live with your mom and dad. Oh, okay. You know, that kind of stuff. So it was an interesting aspect. But so now we're driving towards the three days a week in the office, two days a week. What are you seeing with clients and the companies that you work with? What are they driving towards in terms of their return to office? I think it's all over the place, to be honest. Um, because of the the realm I came from, I'm still in contact with all of my friends from those different companies. And I have a large network of friends within the workplace community. Workplace as an overall community is very, very small globally, right? There's probably a, I could kind of like 200, 300 people max who actually work at these like you know fast growing high like you know forward thinking tech companies who are kind of leading the future of work in some ways and everyone's doing something different and i think the point that people should take away from that is that there is no one way or one solution to the future of work or the future of how your like company gathers and then goes away and then comes back together again i think you know in the in the pre-pandemic times, things were simple. And what you described is exactly like a lot of companies, right? Like, you know, people would not be there some days, but, you know, most offices were actually occupied between 50 to 70% of the time, depending on the type of company, et cetera. So utilization wasn't that heavy because people have things like sick days and vacations and, you know, babies and things of that nature. And I think that in the future, there will be just be more bespoke solutions. And that's what we're seeing with like, you know, our clients personally, and then also in like the larger workplace community is that every company is kind of taking a look at what their culture looks like, what their business priorities are and making decisions based off of that, which is what they should be doing. I think there's a other group as well, though, that is just kind of trying to switch back to what used to be in the pre-pandemic. And those companies, I think, are seeing a lot more attrition than some of the companies who are trying to actually work with their employees and understand their users, uh, which I think is just going to be a symptom of uh, attempting to press the easy button and return to what we had before. Yeah, I think the instinct, uh, you know, as the you know a company owner, is to get everybody back. Right. That that is yeah. definitely you know it's something that we discussed even even on our end, and we're pretty progressive. Well, maybe everyone should come back, right? And then, but you do need to balance that out. And if we are truly living up to what we claim as being a flexible employer and knowing and valuing, you know, all of our employees, well, then that is not necessarily the solution. Now, if you want to come back five days a week, um, no one's going to stop you. Um, but it is definitely a different mindset that the the leadership or ownership, however it is, need to really get themselves into. In order to, and I agree in terms of attrition, you know, people will leave those companies and find companies that are flexible. Yeah, I, I do think though that companies are, um, you know, like owners, ownership of companies and the people who are at executive levels now grew up and learned this management style that works very well in person. And they're not used to asynchronous work. And, you know, asynchronous work is like the highest level, I think, of remote work. And that's a really hard thing for people to learn. And if you've been successful your entire life working in person and managing this way, and that's what you know, if you're the, if the entire leadership of a company is in that mode, it's really hard to make a change otherwise, right? It's really hard to change to the other side of that. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And not every company has time to do that. I think 
explaining that to employees and being flexible about it as you go back is a key part of that, right? Like not every company should be remote. You know, not every company should be in person. And so I think that there's going to be a broad spectrum of that, but working with employees and providing flexibility is the human thing to do, which is what we kind of push forward. Can you define asynchronous work? Like what exactly does that mean? Yeah. So asynchronous work is work that happens in a disconnected manner. So work can actually happen without having large amounts of communication. You use a lot more written documentation versus uh, verbal communication and video meetings. I think, you know, Loom is a really good example of asynchronous where you can record uh, essentially videos of yourself like walking through a deck so people can watch them afterwards or any time zone they're in. Um, written documentation like uh, at Stripe, for example, in the early days, they had hack pads these massive amounts of information written down so that people could just digest them instead of having to reach out to somebody. So like the asynchronous work's been around for a long time. Okay. It just gets better and better as documentation systems get, get better. But with large companies who are making a change to remote work, that's really, really difficult. It's like turning a cruise ship versus turning it like a small paddle boat. Right. It's really hard to do. <laughs> so is that, so is asynchronous in your mind different than sort of the heads down work? Yeah, asynchronous work, you know, is like group work, but done separately. Okay. Um, and I think that, you know, heads down work is just, you know, focused individual work, right? You can have multiple parts working on a diff- on the same objective and then gather together. So you can have part of your work be asynchronous and then part of your work be, you know, collaborative. Got and it. I think that's really what you'll see a lot of remote companies doing because the, the majority of companies who are remote first, Dropbox is a good example of this. They've famously gone remote first and they've come out very verbally about it or vocally about it. And now you're seeing them convert their offices into these kind of collaborative social creative hubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're remote, but they're going to come together and yeah. do things and be social. You know, I think people think remote and they think like nobody's ever going to see each other. But I think the, the, the how we gather and why we gather is and like how we gather intentionally is going to be more important for those companies and every company moving forward. Like, how do you sync up everybody's schedules to be in the office at the same time? Why are they there? And how do you make the most of that time? Right. Because, you know, in a world where we're in the office 30 to 50% of the time, instead of 50 to 70% of the time, getting those schedules synced is really critical. Yeah, that that's actually a really good point because I think we see that with our clients as well, right? That they know that they need to adapt a, a I like the asynchronous side of things because I think that the more that that's explained, I think we'll see clients really adapt that as opposed mm-hmm. to, I'm just going to go off and work from home that day with my heads down work and may or I may or may not you know, accomplish what I needed to in a, in a team setting. Um, to now, you know, we're seeing with our clients where they're, they're getting exactly what you're saying, right? They want that experience center. They want place for clients to come. They do want to have, you know, collaborative meetings. They do want to have a place to gather all of that sort of stuff, but they're a little bit afraid to do it because they do want to still say, well, we work virtually. Right. And so I think the more you, you explain like a Dropbox, well, yes, we're, it's very different from we're 100% virtual versus we are virtual first. That's a whole different ballgame as, as, as far as I'm concerned. That's the first time I've heard it explained that way. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think people want to make a conversation binary. And I talk about this a lot. Like, there's always going to be a spectrum of answers, right, and a spectrum of behaviors. I think to explain a concept to people, sometimes we simplify it down to 
in office or remote or in office hybrid or remote three options is great because they can explain it. But if you sat down an executive at any company, an executive team and asked them to write down the definition of what hybrid work means to them, I guarantee you to get a different answer from every single person because hybrid work at one company is not the same thing as hybrid work at another same way of remote work or in office work, even like it's all defined by your culture, like what, activities you're allowing in your culture and what behaviors you're allowing in your culture. And that's all, you know, dictated obviously by the values and the policies you've created as a company. Yeah. And I think that's hard for people to conceptualize sometimes. And now that work and workplace is being spoken about more, more people are educated about it than ever before. And I think that is also uh, making things both better, but also more difficult. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a lot of confusion. There's also, so now we talk about sort of this return to office, right? And a lot of companies are putting out their, um, their policy, right? Which number yeah. one, to me, that's the wrong way of expressing, you know, right off the bat, this is our policy, right? So if you want to get people yeah. excited about going back to the office now saying there's a policy around it, that's just going to throw everybody off, right? So people are starting to say, well, we want you to come back one day a week, and then we want you to come back, you know, three days a week. And I think what happened is previous, you know, the, the, that was starting, but then the various, well, the various variants of the, of the virus uh, kind of came into play. Yeah. But this time, I think everybody knows this is here to stay. Like where by the time April rolls around, if there's a company going back to the office, people are going to go back to the office. So I think of my own father-in-law um, where it's a negative, right? I mean, he's worked mm -hmm. very successfully now the past you know year and a half. He's worked for this company for pretty much his entire career. And it's a negative. Well, I'm going to have to start going back to the office, you know? And so how do we, how do we change that negative and make it something where it's not this onerous thing that you're going back to the office? Because at the end of the day, and, and, and I, where you, you know, where you live and where, where I live, we do need people to occupy cities, right? Because yeah. there, that's an important aspect of, of everybody's economy, whether you live in the middle of nowhere or you live right outside of New York City, you want your cities to be thriving and successful. And because if they're not, you know, the rest of the nation's going to go down with it. And the bodega at the corner and the grocery store and the, the mm. restaurant scene and all of that sort of stuff needs to be successful. So how do we take that from, you know, oh, I don't feel like going to the office ever again to, well, let's, <laughs> let's make it positive. Yeah. Well, I think there's two parts, right? There's, there's the first part is that I think that making the making going to the office a positive experience is very much reliant on a company actually focusing on their holistic employee experience. And that's something like I preach to people all the time is that like you have to look at the employee experience as an ecosystem and understand that everything from their first day when they come to the office for onboarding or that you do it remotely to the last day they're an employee, it's a holistic experience of their entire journey as an employee. And if you want to make that experience of coming into the physical space a good one, you need to make sure that you are working with your employees to understand them. And you know, companies look at this all the time uh, from a product standpoint, tech companies look at this and they say like, okay, we need to deeply understand our users. Here's their personas. Now we understand all of our personas for our employee, for our you know, users. And we're going to base our product off of that and listen to their feedback. Interestingly, a lot of companies do not do the same thing with their physical workplace. When we start journey mapping and saying, okay, we're going to look at personas of your employees. They're like, well, we don't want to focus on that. We want to like, just get to the, like, just build us a good space. Give us what this person has. It's like, okay, well, that's 
a really good recipe for disaster. Just doing what the big guys are doing or the big you know companies are doing is a really good way to not create a great experience. A great experience is customized for your employees based on your culture, the th- activities they need to be doing in the space and who your employees are like very deeply and understanding those personas is key. And I think that a lot of companies, even though they do that on the product side, don't understand that your workplace is also a product and that understand that your employees are your users. So if you want people to come in and have an enjoyable experience, ask your employees what they want and need, communicate what you're going to be giving them, and then ensure that you're iterating on it over time to continue to improve that experience. And I think we have like probably like a three to eight year journey here for workplace to really redefine what that looks like and learn from iterations over time. On the other side of this, there is, you know, the understanding that there's going to be a painful transition period for cities, right? And for definitely like San Francisco, Soma is a really good example of this right now. You know, you have the mayor and a bunch of businesses trying to bring people back to downtown Soma because it is pretty much vacant right now. And the businesses there have been hurting a lot. Uh, Whereas I look at Los Angeles and because of the mixed use here, where you have residential intermixed with office, intermixed with retail, it feels a lot less painful. And you still see people around all the different parts of the city all the time. And I think that because of this, I think you're going to see a lot lot of reimagining of properties and a lot of reimagining of entire districts to accommodate the future of work and what we're going to realistically have now. Because the reality is when we were building all these, you know, vertical buildings with retail at the bottom and all offices on top and a tech company occupied all those offices, I can think of a building I worked in before where it was like, it was Twitch, Atlassian and Publicis. And all of those companies all had cafeterias. Mm -hmm. So who's going out to support the local restaurants downstairs that are there because this building has been put there. Right. So that was an issue before the pandemic and now it's a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. So how do we kind of reimagine what all of that looks like? And that's going to take, you know, landlords, government uh, occupiers and business owners to kind of reimagine how those things work together in a new way to make sure that everyone is supported. And, you know, I, I definitely do understand why mayors, um, you know, obviously the mayor of New York city and like even president Biden recently have come out to say like, we got to get people back in offices because downtowns are hurting because they want to keep the economy moving. Um, But I also think the economy in some ways is in transition to a new type Mm -hmm. of economy for workplace. And I think that is going to be a little bit painful for people. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. And when you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, my experiences in New York city during the heart of the pandemic, you know, if you were to go to where our office was, which was really more of a um, a commutable a commutable area, right? Lots of office buildings. It was pretty dead. Those restaurants closed. I mean, even Chipotle closed, right? Like it closed down. Yeah. It's back open now, but it just it, nothing nothing was really happening there. But every now and then, we'd have to go to a meeting or whatever it was and go to Tribeca. And you, Mm -hmm. there was no difference in Tribeca, right? It was like (laughs) booming. There were people out on the street. There were people in all the little huts that the restaurants created and that whole area because it was very mixed use. It was very residential. Um, There's plenty of office there, but it's sort of not the corporate office that you'd typically find. It's not financial companies. It's not things like that, right? So, So people were more apt to be in that mixed use environment. That's a really good point and a really good point for city planners and governments to really think about what happens with those office towers 
and maybe it's time to convert them in some way, right? I mean, we, we do plenty of that, um, but maybe we need to holistically think of it almost like a ma- master planning exercise for these, you know, midtown districts and things like that. Yeah. And I think, I think too, it's also about working more with the people who are going to occupy these buildings, right? Like understanding, like, you know, there was a legislation being introduced in Mountain View, California and Palo Alto, California, and all these different places where tech companies were because they kept building these large cafeterias, et cetera. And like, they kept like, they got more and more stringent with rules trying to try to discourage building cafeterias and building amenities on site. I think the opposite approach might be better is working with those companies to understand like, Hey, how could you bring in a local business to actually like provide your food? Or how could you bring in a local business to provide your plants? Or how can you get your employees, incentivize your employees to go to X number of restaurants locally if they're coming into the office, right? And then you're bringing them into your workplace. How can you make the local economy part of the experience of your space as well? I think that would enrich everybody's office. But I think that's more about like getting somewhat disparate parties to work together, yeah. uh, which as you know, as an architect can be difficult. Exactly. hundred <laughs> um, percent. So kind of hearing, you know, different things that you've spoken about in terms of office kind of shifting away from the, the return to office part, but can you define and describe universal design and exactly what that means for the audience? Yeah. So universal design, you know, this is of course my understanding of it, uh, is that universal design is design that is typically what is, what can fit the most amount of users in a given sector, right? So universal design is good for everyone. I think of, you know, curb ramps as a really, really good kind of example of universal design, where it's something that has, that is designed for accessibility, but becomes universally better for every single user. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, before the 1960s, curb ramps were actually not very, uh, like, you know, widespread in cities, et cetera. And being someone with a different level of ability was awful. And it took a lot of, you know, active protests, activism for those to actually get installed. Now, you know, universally, they're actually better for everybody. Sure. So I think, you know, from that perspective, universal design is something that is actually the best for the largest amount of people. I think human-centered design takes us a little bit further in that when we're designing for universal design, it kind of leaves some edge cases out. And when you're looking at personas and like very deep human-centered design for companies, you can start to get more refined and really take a more whole, like a very like deep approach on individuals. Whereas, you know, universal design is better for larger ecosystems. I kind of think of human-centered design being better for like smaller Small. ecosystems. Sure, sure. Okay. And so then how does that fit in with um, equitable design or equitable workplace. Yeah. Well, I mean, equity, equity is all about, I mean, I think if you think, I think the classic example of equity versus equality is the ladder example of a offense, right? Where you're like, okay, we give everyone an equal size ladder. Okay. Well, the short person can still not reach the top of the fence, right. but if we put all the ladders at the same height, that's equity where everyone is given the same chance. Mm-hmm. And I think in equitable design, I kind of think of parents when I think about equitable, equitable design a lot, because parents are often, and especially like, you know, women who are parents kind of fall off the edge of the employee ladder sometimes because of lack of good policies, lack of parental leave, lack of accommodations for lactation rooms, et cetera. And I think that when it comes to like the, that persona, 
equitable design means giving them an equal opportunity to be at work or to access work. And I think in that way, remote work is a more equitable solution hmm. for parents. Sure. The flip side of that is that as we've started to see from studies, it actually puts like, you know, women and you know minorities in general, myself included, have actually like found myself being a Latino, have found that remote work actually is better for us because we feel like we're on an equal footing. And I've even seen this with some executive teams I've worked on where the per one person who was remote the entire time spoke up in a meeting I was in the design charrette. And they're like, yeah, we can't go back to doing conference rooms the way we used to, because this is the first time I've ever been able to speak uninterrupted with the entire executive team. And this is like a C-level executive saying this. Wow. So that's something really like interesting to me. But I think, you know, on the converse side of the equity portion or equitable portion of how remote work helps, you know, parents and minorities, the flip side is that studies are starting to show that, you know, white males are more likely to go back to the office and does that, if your company doesn't have the proper cultural safeguards there or norms, it could create disparity over time for those two groups or increasing disparity. So there's already some like, you know, small red flags being raised about like these kind of things that you need to watch out for if you're operating in a hybrid mode or in a remote mode as well. Interesting. And is that something that you help companies define? Uh, like, you know, like their equitable design portion. Yeah. And even just the, the again, using that word, I don't like policies, but, you know, the, or guidelines, <laughs> let's call them around that, because I think of that for me, right, as an employer, um, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Right. Because I'm coming yeah. at it from from let's be honest, I'm coming at it from the white guy angle. Right. And then the employer. And then there are all of the things that make up the business that have to, you know, uh, be accomplished, the the revenue, the, the the work has to get done and all of those sort of things on the business side. But I wouldn't even know necessarily where to start um, to make sure that when we when we do have that, there there isn't a haves and haves nots kind of thing. And I was actually yeah. talking about this with someone earlier. Um, you know, we're in the process of acquiring a company, um, and that that's one of my biggest fears, right? It's a it, it's that yeah, well, we have Mancini, and then we have the others, right? We don't want that. We want it always to yeah. be everyone is on the same an equal footing right from the beginning, and we want to do everything we can to avoid that sort of someone else in the room kind of thing. It's it, it's not, it, it, it doesn't make for, a, again, company culture, extremely important. It doesn't make for a good company culture. <laughs> yeah. You know, company integration and uh, mergers and acquisitions are always, always tough. It's always an interesting thing. I've worked at a lot of companies where we were acquiring companies all the time and trying to integrate them, trying to integrate their spaces, trying to integrate their people. And it was always because I was on the construction design side, it was always a big challenge because you're like, oh, well, like this is how X company does these offices. How would you like to? And like, you're always trying to integrate the brand and the people and the policies. It's a, it's definitely a hard thing, you know, for, for myself, when I work with companies, um, I bring in someone much smarter than me. I have a lot of partnerships with different, like, you know, uh, practitioners for DEI items and learning and development. And like, I tend to partner with very smart people who know more than me in each of those fields. And I love to work with companies to set up their initial strategy, understand the diet and like, you know, help diagnose what they need and what their requirements are and really get to deeply understand the customer and then help prescribe the kind of future things they need to actually get them on the path to having a better workplace experience overall. Okay. Interesting. 
Yeah, there's people who know way more about you know <laughs> equitable design than I do, especially when it comes to policies, procedures, et cetera, like Aubrey Blanche's uh, a good example of this. She and I used to work together at Atlassian. She's now uh, a VP of DI at uh, CultureAmp, and she also like consults as well. So yeah, she's a great example of someone if you have never heard of her. She is a fantastic uh, thought leader and practitioner in the diversity and inclusion world. Awesome. That's great. So... Um... A few more questions on this that I was thinking about. Um, where did we shift from, and I don't know if there's an exact date, but where did we shift from the employer as, you know, the dictator, as I as I, I wrote down here on my notes? Um, you know, the employer was anything the employer said the employees did to now where the employees have such an enormous say in in everything that's done. Where did we switch? And and in, do you think we've over empowered employees or under empowered the the employer? What what's your sense of that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, my 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 tiny so my tiny like you know uh, like when did the power shift to the proletariat? Uh, yeah. is probably the question. Yeah, uh, just, just kidding. Um, you know, I think that. There's a few factors at play, and I, I'm a huge fan of economics because my father was an economist and programmer, um, and still is. Uh, he's actually, weirdly enough, a remote employee uh, at a tech company, of course. Um, and I, I think that some point between like 2021 and 2022, things really started to shift. If you look at U.S. policy on immigration over the past, you know, five to six years, uh, famously because the previous presidency. Uh, we have under-imported talent over the past five to six years, and the pandemic completely halted yeah. that import of talent. And so we have an under-subscription of imported talent, H-1B visa holders, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, and then we have more jobs being created, and people have had a moment to pause. And I talk about this with a lot of my friends and workplace as well. A lot of people have shifted jobs. A lot of people have quit. Some people have left the industry completely. And it's because we were on this train that could never stop. It's like nobody could stop the economy of, you know, 2015 to 2020. Everyone's like, we're building offices. It's amazing. Build, 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 build. And it halted. And for myself, you know, my mother passed away in 2019. And that was my halt, which happened just before the pandemic. And I, you know, quit tech, took a job as a managing director at a PM firm. And I was like, I'm going to take a break and see what happens and like get off the train. And then the pandemic hit and I saw my friends start to do the same thing. And they're like, you know what? I don't know if I want to go back to traveling all the time, yeah. like 40, 50% of the time. I don't know if I want to go back. Like that momentary pause, I think gave everyone a minute to reflect and say, is this what I really want to be doing? And so the combination of a lack of talent that we could import and people questioning where they want to be, I think is contributing to this, like, you know, great resignation or great reconsideration. Yeah. For employees and for employers, that's tough because yeah. there is a shortage of talent and employees want things like better benefits. They want to work for a company that supports the same ideals as them. Exactly. And they want to work for a company that's going to hold or live up to their ideals. I think the, you know, Gen Z and millennial friends I have who are willing to work for a company like Enron from back in the day are probably very low. Exactly. Um, and I think that, you know, you see like a lot of this and that the kind of companies are trying to work for or the kind of things they're doing now. I see a lot more of my friends starting small businesses um, and going out on their own as practitioners because they're they say to me, they're like, hey, you know, like I just don't really fit anywhere anymore. 
and I want to see what I can do and have a better work-life balance for my family. Yeah, and, and we see that too. We've seen people leave the industry. We've seen people leave. Uh, we had one one person that left to start a a, a cookie store with her uh, with her sister, right? And, and yeah. hey, what can you say to that? That's awesome. Go for it, you know? <laughs> um, and then what we're doing also, which I find interesting, which we've never done before, is we're actually hiring um, people that have gone out on their own on the design side, right? They've got a couple of clients for themselves, but they want to work a certain amount of hours on a certain kind of project. So we've done that for some of our restaurants that we design. And we've gone and we've hired, you know, some designers that are very good and known in the industry for a restaurant design, but we're hiring them for 15 hours for a project, right? A week or maybe 10 hours for for whatever it might be. And you know, for them, I totally get that. That's a flexibility thing where I'm going to produce for for you these hours that you've allotted. And I'm going to get paid on those hours. And then I'm either going to go do something else for somebody else or for myself, or I'm going to do nothing, whatever that might be. But it's a, I, I get that. I totally get that. And if people can sustain that and, and it's entrepreneurial in a way and can lead to many other things, but if they can do that, why not that they put the power back in their own, in their own hand? Yeah, and I think it's an interesting uh, trend that's been kind of acknowledged by economists for a while. There's a really good book called The Elephant and the Flea. And in it, this British economist talks about the idea that over time, I think it's from 2003, and over time, large companies will get larger and they'll be with elephants and there'll be more fleas, like small individual contract, like you know, independent contractors, freelancers, et cetera, who are operating, working for multiple companies at a time and kind of choosing the projects they want to work on and becoming more like a little more specialized. Um, and I think that that is something that we're seeing now because of the pandemic that has been accelerated and anything that's happening because of the pandemic, a lot of the, or the I guess you say the majority of these things are trends that were already happening that just have received a five to 10 year acceleration. For sure. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's important to remember, but I think that having the flexibility for people if that's important to you, like working as an independent contractor is a great way to maintain that. And it's good for companies too, because a lot of companies cannot get the talent they need right now. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure with architecture as well, I'd love to ask, I should ask you, like, are you seeing a lot of your talent that you would otherwise be able to get go to tech companies? Because I have noticed a lot of my architectural friends going in-house to tech companies and my strategy friends going in-house to tech companies as well. Strategy for sure. Strategy goes, definitely, that's a big step right out of the architectural world, right into tech companies. Um, less so on the technical architecture side, but a lot on the design mm -hmm. side. Anyone that can bridge that gap of from the initial strategy programming into, let's call it concept design, schematic design, those, uh, yes, we've seen plenty of that where it's it's moved into that. We've had someone that went and did that and moved to Tesla, moved to Austin, Texas, and is at Tesla. Um, you know, very cool. And what I loved about him is he actually turned around and gave us a project, which was even better. So yeah, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's a plant, but, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's um, it is an interesting market in in that respect. Um, over time, you know, I think WeWork was doing that. WeWork was definitely taking a lot of talent out of the yes. architecture world. They were really trying to be their own architecture firm. That mm -hmm. whenever I hear an architect, whenever I hear a company trying to develop their own architecture department and you know deliver soup to nuts architecture, that's time to leave that company because that's going to fail. Only architects know how to work this miserable business themselves and and make it make it functional and work for them. Once that other those other companies get in, they uh, 
they're in over their skis for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think for me, having known a lot of people that we were, it seemed like the biggest challenge was that they were trying to build several companies at the same time, not just one, right? They were exactly. trying to build an architectural practice, a strategy practice, like all, all at once yeah. while taking down tons of space and keeping clients happy and building a great experience. And yeah, the scale was incredible. It, it, um, it was. So speaking of architects, you've worked with many of them. If you had to pick <laughs> one thing, um, what annoys you about architects? Oh man, I, I don't know if I really get annoyed. I think, you know, if there was one class I wish every architect had to take, it would probably be business communication. Hmm. Uh, the best architects I've ever worked with were really clear communicators and really good about not over-promising and under-delivering, right? So I think there's this common thing that happens in business where and I've, you know, being, having been a project manager, project director previously, like I totally understand the dynamics in that, you know, X company asks for more, you, we try to negotiate you down, we pay you less, there's change orders after that. And it creates this really negative dynamic that is not sustainable over time. And I think if there was better, clear business communication and understanding, and I would actually say the same thing about you know, internal workplace people, like take a business communication and finance course um, so that you can understand the dynamics of both teams and communicate more clearly. It would just create better outcomes over time yeah. because I've never, you know, I've, I've worked with tons of architects all over the world and designers and they always produce amazing things. I think where it falls off the rails so much of the time is the hours billing, et cetera. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the end, for the creative teams, it can be a race to the bottom sometimes, mm -hmm. and that that sucks for everybody. It's just not a great solution. So yeah, and that's I what think, I yeah, mean. That, yeah, no, that's what I mean about the business side that it being a miserable business in that respect. That's what makes it difficult, right? Is that yeah, architects and designers get super excited about you know what they're going to do and the potential to it every time, and it's this overzealousment that a lot of times does not marry up with the fee. And, you know, the, and, and, and what'll happen is that that eventually catches up with you. And if you don't communicate clearly and you don't, and you're not direct with the client, it becomes a problem. And then a source of tension down the road, our best clients are the ones where we can be honest and say, listen, this is what you're getting. And this is actually what they get, you know, and if yeah. you want more, well, then it's going to be, it's going to cost more and it, because it takes more hours and there's, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that at all. No. And I think on the flip side too, the clients need to be more transparent about budget and what they can really afford. Yeah. Um, and understanding, you know, work harder at, and this is hard because it's not always there. You know, if, it's, if you're doing a one-off project and it's not always your forte that you're doing construction, et cetera, it's hard to understand construction pricing and why things are so expensive, especially now during the pandemic, yeah. goodness gracious, things are just, just throughout your plans. Um, but I think it's, I think clients having been with myself previously, you need to have a better understanding of, costs, cost impacts, and the actual like process of architecture and construction. And if they understood that better, they'd probably be better clients. hundred percent. So our audience would love to get to know you better. Um, you know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What's oh man, uh, that is a tough question. So <laughs> I have lived in many major cities. I was, I guess I was born in Michigan, uh, lived in Chicago for 10 years, Northeast Pennsylvania for the remainder, and then Southeast Pennsylvania for school. New York City to start my career, and uh, then Los Angeles, San Francisco, and now back in West Hollywood, California. So yeah, 
I have been all over the United <laughs> States, uh, for better or worse. My dad's job took us to a lot of different places. And uh, what yeah, very do? lucky to have lived in all those places, though. What did your dad do? Uh, well, oh, you said he was uh, an economist, the, right? Yeah. Yeah, he he got his, uh, he's actually from Lima, Peru originally. Uh, so he moved here at 18, got his degree in economics, worked for Delta Airlines, I think, for a little bit when I was like a baby. Okay. And uh, then he got his master's, learned programming, and he's actually worked as a uh, again, he was a Java architect for Goldman Sachs for a long, long time. And then he went back to coding camp uh, after leaving Goldman. And now he works as a programmer again, or engineer. Oh, wow. Phenomenal. Um, yeah. So he's, yeah, he's done that for most of our lives. He's owned his own company previously as well. And yeah, so now he's a, a tech employee, uh, very similar to myself. <laughs> How, uh, so you you have a, a bachelor's in religious studies, Correct. Correct. So how does that translate into what you do now? <laughs> uh, well, I told my mother I wanted to be a carpenter and she told me I was going to college. Uh, she was a residential broker. Okay. Um, and I told her I wanted to be a carpenter. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to study something I'm actually interested in. And so I, I decided to study religious studies because I'd always been interested in religion and understanding how religion influenced the way people gathered, the way people formed communities. And during college, I worked as a facilities manager, facilities assistant offsite um, to pay for college. And I also was a resident director of a few buildings. And through that, I kind of became involved in this world of like community and building spaces. And after college, graduated into the recession, wasn't sure what I was doing with my life, took a year and uh, found that I wanted to be in the world of facilities management because that's what we called it back then. Right. And I got my uh, entry-level job with a company called Eura Services. I didn't realize where the assignment would be. And when I went for my in-person interview, it was at Google New York as a contractor. And I worked as a half-time mailroom, half-time facilities assistant. And I worked my way up, learning space planning, move management, project management, design, um, and always taking courses and increasing my studies as I went from company to company. Very cool. Uh, so you, so you worked at 111 8th Avenue. I did. Yes. Okay. Yes. When we were, uh, very few floors. <laughs> That's funny. We have someone in the room that also, uh, worked there. So, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It's a, it's a, I feel like everyone has worked in that building or Chelsea market at some point <laughs> exactly. in their lives in New York city. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a mammoth building. I mean, it's like, yeah, the it's like the crossroads building yeah. on its side. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. So it, take us a little bit through your career here. You know, I in my notes, I have, you know, you worked at Google, you worked at Netflix, you worked at Atlassian and, and Miro. What have you been doing at those firms? What's um, what, what are some of the takeaways that you have from those experiences? Yeah, you know, I think for me, I just feel really lucky and I feel really like, I feel truly, truly happy that I was able to work at all those companies at those different times. Honestly, when I joined Google, I was so intimidated by the company and by the people who worked there that someone like you were doing the welcome tour and somebody asked me what my favorite integer was. And I just blanked. And I think the guy thought I was being a jerk, but I just could not remember that an integer was just a number. And I swear to God, I just wrote, like I just like was waiting to be the last person to write on this whiteboard what my favorite integer was. And it, it, that was just like the worst first day ever. Um, but then once I got to know the people there, I realized they were just normal people who were incredibly intelligent and every culture had their problems, right? So like Google was an amazing place to work and it was a really good place to learn. 
And from there, I got recruited by Netflix and I, you know, I joined when they were closing down the DVD, uh, not the DVD, the video game portion of Quickster. Mm-hmm. Um, after mm-hmm. that split went kaput and uh, I was in Beverly Hills. And right after I joined, they started really pumping originals and like they started doing that from that office and the office grew really quickly. And I was really fortunate to have uh, a manager who took me under her wing and said to me one day, she goes, Omar, she's like, I don't think you really want to be an office manager. She's like, I think you want to be a project manager. She's like, do you want to go and do this project with me in Amsterdam? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And she's like, yeah, great. So we're just flying out in two weeks. And next thing I know, I was installing security cameras, moving furniture, like doing all this stuff that probably shouldn't have been doing. Um, but it was a really amazing learning experience. And like, you know, company after company, I got pulled to these companies by people who I had met at previous companies. The person who pulled me to Dropbox um, was somebody who I had met when I was at Google in the mailroom. And he was a director of construction at That's Google amazing. at the time. And then he was at Dropbox. And I was interviewing for facilities manager job at Dropbox. And he said, you know, I think you actually want to be a project manager. I'm going to steal you for this team and brought me into that team. And the you know, same thing happened at Stripe and then Atlassian, someone found me. I've been very fortunate to have been taken along this journey um, and to have been able, I've always been a lifelong learner. And if anything that my parents taught me, that's the one thing they truly gave me, my brothers and sisters, was this hunger to learn and this tenacious need to know more. And I think that for me, that has suited me well, because the more I learned about construction, project management, design, it's led me to something that I truly love, which is design thinking and industrial design. Sure. And all those companies were amazing places to work. They all had their issues, of course. But I think that I've been very fortunate to have been from all those companies and to have taken the journey I have. And so I'm just very grateful for that. That's awesome. And so so now in 2017, you started uh, Affordances. And I, yes. I pulled this off your um, I pulled this off your website because I, I really like the, the the part of it here where you say, you know, a consultancy that helps companies strategize and solve problems, um, all while staying focused on what matters, the real people behind the scenes. And I really like that behind the scenes part. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think we lose focus on the idea that, and companies lose focus on the idea that there's real humans that these decisions affect, right? It can be very easy at a company of, and I think this is why I kept going to smaller and smaller companies in my career, is that it can be very easy at a company of 10,000 people or in an office like 111.8, right? Where there's like massive amounts of people to be like, okay, well, we're going to move this thing or we're going to change this thing. And it affects people and it affects their daily lives. And I think that often in design processes and in planning processes for whether it's a virtual policy or a virtual strategy or a in-office build and a design of a kitchen or a design of a conference room, we forget that there's real humans who will be using these spaces and every decision we make is somewhat important, right? So getting lazy about the design of a conference room table or getting lazy about the design of a conference room layout or getting lazy about like acoustics, et cetera. They all have downwind effects on the actual humans who work there. And I just saw time and time again, companies compromising on those things. And so my, this is where I go into preacher mode a little bit, I think, is that I actively encourage companies to always consider the humans first. 
And that also can, you know, kind of, of course, butt heads a little bit with the financial outcomes and the financial priorities of a company. And I've definitely experienced this internally myself where, you know, there's the, the need to innovate and the need to learn new processes, talking about hybrid companies and companies need to put in the work. And sometimes executive teams and management teams don't want to put in the work. My job, I see my job as pushing them to be more human centered. Yeah. Makes sense. How do you, how do you get your clients and and what services do you provide? Gosh. So, uh, I get my clients and, you know, of course, like I've had my company since 2017, it started out as a way for me to help people without, you know, not being able to charge them or like, you know, get paid in some way. Uh, and so I was helping friends who had, who were you know, like young, who had young office managers coming to them or they were brokers mostly. And they were saying like, Hey, like, can you help this person understand workplace or understand a build out or understand the process? And I was like, yeah, I'll sit down with them, like have some coffee, like chat them through the process and like kind of help mentor them a little bit. Um, now, of course, affordances has a bit more of a focus, uh, which is great. And we get clients in many different ways. So uh, sometimes clients reach out to us directly and they come through all different means. If, you know, I prefer to reach clients through thought leadership, you know, podcasts are a great example, writing blogs, um, being very vocal on LinkedIn, but also vocal in the community groups that I'm a part of. Purposeful Intent is one of those community groups mm. um, that I'm a part of. And that's focused on like pushing forward the idea of workplace experience as something that is truly vital and helping people get together to share those ideas. Um, and then also through traditional means as well. So obviously PR is critical. Um, and obviously like also like outreach to different teams, venture capitalist teams, et cetera. Um, because I think, you know, there's different perspectives of how affordances gets our name out there. And of course, different angles, you know, but selling is something I'm not a huge fan of. So I prefer thought leadership. Right. Right. <laughs> um, as far Same as services <laughs> go, you know, our focus is mainly on, setting up early teams with a strategy and then partners that they can roll that strategy forward with. So typically we'll come in and work with a team to set up that initial strategy for whether they're returning to office or creating common understandings for their teams. I prefer to find teams who are early on who still don't know what they want to do because I think companies often come to me and say, Hey, tell us what to do. I'm like, okay, well, I cannot prescribe before I diagnose. You would not ask a doctor to just tell you what to do if you walked into his office, right? You would say like, hey, let's take a look at your people. Let's take a look at your culture. Give me all your data. Let's understand it. And let's see what your your goals are for your company. You obviously have OKRs and goals for a business. And so let's see where you want to be in the next five to 10 years. And then let's create a workplace strategy or team experience that matches that. And so that's what we do with teams and then help them find the right partners to move that forward into the future. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So you would be, you know, sort of in front of us before we got in and then we would collaborate with you and then ultimately bring that, you know, whatever the findings are, whatever that cultural experiences that they're trying to have, whatever they're trying to give to their employees to then into the design side of things. Exactly. And I see my job as helping make your job easier, right? So it should make the client's life easier. It should make the architect's life easier. And it should make everything less painful from there on. Yeah, it's definitely it, it. that kind of approach to a project, especially when it comes to office, um, less so with, let's say, out of the ground development, right? I mean, there are performers, <laughs> yeah. the performers are what they are, and the, the developer needs to meet those by the, the inch, 
right? Or, or the whole thing doesn't work. But on the office <laughs> yeah. side where it's a lot more touchy-feely and you really need to understand what's important to a company, what's driving them, you kind of being ahead of that game sets us up for success later on so that we're not trying to drag that out of a client in the middle of schematic design and design development and then a bid set is going out and then construction's about to start. And we get to the point where it's, well, that's all fine and nice, but we now have a schedule to meet and this is happening. And so, yeah. you know, that, that's great, all those great ideas, but we needed to have done that before we even started the project kind of thing. So it it makes a lot of sense. And it's something I'd love to partner with you on more as, you know, we kind of get get into this next phase of office development for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, something that uh, just here we're to something that Fordance is, is also focused on is finding the kind of what I describe as the next set of solutions for workplace for the future or the like workplace experience of the future. So a number of the companies who I'm either investing in or advising on the side um, are companies that are focused on helping move that forward. Um, for example, one of the companies who I'm advising is a company called Pansia, and they're actually focused on holistic health for employees, um, not just for remote, but in-person teams and kind of getting away from ergonomics and just saying like, okay, well, we're just going to give people equipment. They're actually developing an application for helping people holistically diagnose their issues at home hmm. and saying, okay, like I have back pain. How are you sitting? And then giving them exercises to help improve their health. And then as a last step, moving to equipment. Okay. So like helping actually improve. And so there's a lot of things that are coming out of the pandemic I think that are evolutionary in uh, workplace and prop tech that will be very forward thinking. And I think that to me is like one of the most exciting things about this. It's one of the exciting benefits of the pandemic. The whole thing's horrible. It's terrible. Yep, it's been you. awful, but innovation is happening in our sector, which has, was not happening before because the train never stopped. Exactly. And everybody did everybody else's office space. I mean, let's be honest. We, we yes. kind of cookie cuttered everything. They all looked a little different, but they all functioned exactly the same. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I got very tired of building uh, slides and things that were just Instagrammable moments, yeah. uh, as slides. they called them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so is there anything um, that we haven't covered that you'd, you'd like to talk about? Gosh, I guess I would love to get your perspective on where you see the field of architecture going from here, because I think that, you know, I have a lot of friends in workplace and architecture, and I think everyone, there's a mix of parties, right? The people who are very worried and there's people who are very excited. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, the people who are very worried are like, oh, like what if workplace doesn't exist anymore? Like they're very like holding on to their job. And I think the people who are excited are open to change and open to like, this might look different. Yeah. But that's not bad. Correct. Yeah. And 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 I definitely fall into the excited side of things. Um, maybe in the beginning of the pandemic where I would be listening to CNBC and then be saying the the office is dead and nobody's ever going to go back to an office ever again. Wasn't sure as I wasn't as optimistic as I am now, but seeing kind of how things have evolved. And I think you touched on it earlier. It's that it's no longer about, well, this is what the trend is. This is what the last guy has done. It is about what works for the company. We can really get in there. We can figure out what might work and then develop them or develop design and design things that 
actually help them and their company culture and whatever it is that they do move that forward and grow their business. I also, you know, for for us at our firm, you know, we've really embraced the, you know, the the hybrid work, right? Where we're working um, uh, a lot on teams and in, we've opened up other offices, satellite offices, so that it gives people an opportunity to commute to an office, but not necessarily always commute to New York City. And I know that sort of hub and spoke thing was talked about early on, but yeah. it was really something that I really gravitated toward and wanted to do before the pandemic. And this kind of gave us a reason to do that. And as we open up other offices in other markets, that's really the plan, right? And so that you don't have to have your sort of all a, all your eggs in one basket. You can spread that out. And it also, find, we can find new talent that way and different ways of engaging the talent. And then maybe come together if we have to along the way. And so I'm excited about it. I also see, you know, there's for, for a firm like us, we've diversified over the years anyway to not be just doing corporate interiors. We've, mm-hmm. you know, when when corporate interiors, much like Google, started taking on a hospitality side of things, we actually moved into hospitality as a result, right? Well, if we do, could design this amazing, you know, cafeteria experience, well, we could do a restaurant, right? So so we, we parlayed all of that into these other avenues, into hotels. And so I see the market kind of really spreading its wings and designers that were corporate designers are loving doing things that are not just corporate anymore. It's, you know, we're doing restaurants all over the place or hotels in other other cities around the U.S. And it's an exciting time for at least us at Mancini Duffy to kind of spread our wings. Yeah, and I think that that's actually another thing that's happened during the pandemic. I think the hub and spoke model makes a ton of sense, honestly, for teams that have like smaller outfits of people who are like located in like from New York, Connecticut, for example, or New Jersey, et cetera. I think exactly. it makes a ton of sense. But I think that also the the point about like the hospitality coming into play and the retail coming into play with workplace is also something that I, I'm seeing as well. And I think that it is fantastic that it's coming in and it's all kind of intermixing. Like the lessons can be learned from all those different categories from each other kind of cross-sectionally, yeah. which is going to create just better design overall. Agreed. Agreed. So kind of bringing it all back around, uh, if you had to do it differently as far as your career, what might you have changed so far? <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I, th- I think about this a lot. Uh, go figure. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd change a thing. You know, I, I thought about this and I talked to a friend a few weeks ago and I realized like I I was talking to her about having regrets about leaving a certain company too early. And she said to me, she said, but yeah, but then I wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been there to refer me to my job at the company I'm at now. And I'm like, oh yeah, gosh, I wouldn't have been able to refer you. And we never would have had that cup of coffee. And I think if you look at your life as like an interconnection of all these different like happenstance and circumstances, I think, I don't think there's a single thing I would change. Like, were there things that were great, things that were bad? Absolutely. But um, everything has knock on consequences and uh, I'm pretty okay with them. That's awesome. I love it. Um, so Omar, thank you so much for being my guest on the Anti-Architect podcast. Uh, to see and read more about Omar, um, you can visit his website, which is affordances.me. And then where else can can we find you? I know you're active on LinkedIn and give us some some other yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, affordances also has an Instagram, which is just our name. 
And uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's uh, Taller de Omar, which is just Omar's workshop in Spanish. Oh, cool. um, and yeah, that's uh, that's me. Well, thank you so much for being for being here. No, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Awesome. <laughs>